We are continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, which tells the story of God's people rebuilding the, the city of God. And Nehemiah is all about building a new Jerusalem, which, as we see in the book of Revelation, is precisely what the, what the church is called to do today. We are called to build a new Jerusalem, and, and so we're turning to the book of Nehemiah in order to learn how to do just that. What should we as Christians be doing when the church is in disrepair? In a society that cares very little for the pursuit of holiness or the word of God, what should be our posture? Last week we learned about the great oppression to the building project from those outside the city and and Nehemiah's leadership in, in teaching the people how to work and fight Chapter 4 ends uh, really with a sense of victory, a great rally to, to continue working on the wall with a weapon in one hand, building and defending the holy city. And the enemy's attempts to, to derail the whole thing, was, it was shut down, at least until chapter 5 begins. Chapter 5 takes us into the city where we see trouble within, the external threat has been, has been shut down, so, so now Satan has to find some other way to destroy the work of, of God's people, and he employs the strategy that a house divided against itself will fall. And a lot of what chapter 5 is doing is asking the question, what good is it to, to build a, the city of God, be a, a distinct, set-apart, consecrated people, if things on the inside are dismantled? And, and if it looks no different than the surrounding world. But there's a lot here, so, so let's jump right in. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." So a couple of months into the work, uh, and we read of trouble in the city. And pretty serious trouble, right, involving poverty and famine and debt and enslavement. And and we have several different groups here who are bringing these complaints, right? We have one group who is those who didn't have food and and they were hungry. They had enlisted in Nehemiah's uh, workforce slash army and and it uh, took them away from their jobs, and with no income, they had no money to buy food. Another is those who owned land, but they had to mortgage that land to buy grain because of a famine going on. And then last, and, and this, is, this is really the kicker of the whole thing, the last group is those who were borrowing at, at such high interest rates that they were only getting in more debt to the point of selling their children into slavery. And with all of this, the people cry out. Against who? Not the Persian Empire or some other power, 
The people were, were grumbling from within against one another. They, they were doing these things to one another. So this sets the scene. D- despair was potent and, and it was being used as a weapon by Satan. He, he divided brother from brother and, and sister from sister. He brought instability to the city and community of Israel. As terrifying as the threats of Sambalot and Tobiah were, the threat of destruction from within was far greater. So we get the picture. Things are not good. And, and Nehemiah gets word of this and we see his response here in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So Nehemiah hears of the exploitation of his people, of, of the poor, and it angers him. And this is the right response to immoral practices that hurt people. This was Jesus' reaction toward the money changers in the temple when he condemned them for, for turning the temple into a den of thieves. People were getting hurt and he was angry. The Apostle Paul calls us as Christians to be angry without sinning. And this is what we see Nehemiah do. This is a a righteous anger, an an anger that rises up when when the truth of the gospel is attacked and and God's law is compromised. We have plenty to be righteously angry about today. But injustice toward the needy, especially within within our own big C church, should be up there. And what we do with that anger... And I'll give you a hint, it's not, as Eric pointed out last week, firing off tweets and picking fights on social media. But what we do with that anger is vital, is vital to the witness of the church. Part of what makes our anger righteous is what we do with it. Does our anger spur us on to loving action? Here's an example. Our country witnessed almost 50 years of righteous anger at the murder of millions of image bearers in the womb. And honestly, we should maintain that anger, even though a major battle has been won. We, we praise God for the victory. But one of the implications, especially here in Texas, is an increase in children being born and given up. Are we ready to care for the poor in that way? Are we funding pro-life organizations? Are we, to some degree, involved in foster care and adoption? The need for the church to step up and take action is only going to increase. Are we ready? Look at verse 7 and 8. I took counsel with myself... And I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So so we see two things here. Nehemiah gets angry, but then he acts. He doesn't just stew in his anger. He acts. But look, 
before he acts, he, what? He takes counsel with himself. Anger can be a dangerous emotion. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. So, to avoid saying and doing something that he might regret, Nehemiah takes a minute to consider his response. And that's a wise thing. We should all learn to do that. Then he, then he calls a meeting. And he, he acts as prosecutor, bringing charges against the nobles and officials. He, he tells them that the people are suffering while they profit. That, that their own neighbors aren't eating and even selling their children into slavery because they can't pay back their debts to them. And, and here's why this is, this is so ridiculous to Nehemiah. He, he knows the law. Look at Leviticus 25, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. And verse 36 is crucial here. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. What? So, so why don't you take interest? What, why are you going to act in this way? Because you fear God. And we'll talk more about that. Verse 38. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So, so part of the law of God that was given to govern the people of God is that they weren't to loan money at interest. Why? Because he's your brother. And because you fear God. And because God brought you out of slavery, so don't put your brother back in slavery. And so he says, uh, back in Nehemiah, he says in verse 9, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? There it is again. To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. They were not walking in the fear of God. So they had little concern for one another. As we've seen, God is building a city with and through a people, and it matters a whole lot how that people functions. And the fear of God comes from the inside. We can build all we want, but if, but if things aren't right on the inside, in our hearts, within our walls then it doesn't make any difference. We like to think a lot about about the corrupt nature of of culture and society. But what about what's going on in our own walls? Rather than just looking around in judgment and condemnation at a world that that is losing its mind, what if we held up the mirror of God's word and said, Lord, search me. And know my heart. Is there any unjust, unkind, unwise way in me? Listen, I I don't think the rich were were necessarily waking up every morning (laughs) trying to think up new ways to screw over the poor people in their city. I think it's just more of a consistent mindset of what can I do that will benefit me? while leaving the poor to suffer. And that, 
That's not how God's people were called to act in the Old Testament, and it is not how we, as Christ's church, are to behave today. One of Satan's favorite weapons is selfishness. If he can get us thinking only about ourselves and what we want, he wins. Before we even realize that he's doing something. So instead of worrying over over what will benefit me, what would it look like to be more concerned with my brothers and sisters? And we'll talk more about what that looks like. But, but Nehemiah is seeing greed and selfishness lead to a disregard for the poor. And listen, concern for one another, especially the poor, has always been a mark of God's faithful people. A, a recurring indictment from the prophets on, on the people was a lack of care for the poor. Jesus brings good news to the poor. And the early church was, was known for their love and care for the poor. Concern for the poor is a mark of God's faithful people. Psalm 28 that we heard in our readings earlier says in verse 6, Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Did you know that the Lord wants to use you to answer pleas for mercy? When, when God is praised for, for hearing the voice of the suffering, it's often because people, uh, faithful people take loving action. By our care for the poor and the needy and the suffering, we are working on behalf of the Lord to answer prayers. Again, are we ready? Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So the jury is out on on verse 10. Some commentators think that that Nehemiah is admitting guilt to participating in the same usury that, that these other people were. Others think that he did loan money, but at no interest, which sort of makes this more of a a follow my example statement. But either way, he says that it stops now. Abandon this, this nonsense and make it right. Give it all back. And they agree. Best case scenario. Right? How, how great would it be that every time you called someone to repentance, their response was, yes, okay, I'll do it. But that's what happens. And then they swear an oath to it. And, and then in an act uh, sort of emulating the prophets, Nehemiah shook out his clothes. In, in verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. So there was this common practice back then of, of hiding valuables in, in uh, garments. And so people would have fully understood what Nehemiah was saying. And the warning was serious. If they didn't obey God, he would shake them from his hold. 
from his presence. The people were being invited to participate in in an act of, of covenant keeping with dire consequences if they refused. So, so Nehemiah's righteous anger leads him to, to a stern but loving rebuke. And the call to repentance is clear. If you feel like you haven't cared for your Christian brothers and sisters well, or maybe you've taken advantage of someone, or maybe you've, you've spoken against someone behind their back, what... Whatever it is that could be causing division among us, the the call from Nehemiah is a call to repentance. And not when we feel like it. He says it stops now. Repent now. Enough. Our sin needs dealt with immediately. So, just in that was the first half of that chapter, just in quick summary of this first section, if, if we're going to build the city of God and, and be a distinct, set-apart people for, for the glory of God and for the salvation of the nations, then we can't look and act like everyone else. Especially in the way that we take care of one another, and the poor in particular. And, and we need to be on guard against, against division within, not just threats from the outside. And listen, it's, it's not just money that threatens to divide us. It's probably not famine and, and slavery that threatens us. But race, gender, sexuality, authority, all of it has the potential to get us grumbling against one another. But we protect ourselves and, and the church by, by walking in the fear of God and, and staying committed to his law and truth, which calls us to think less of ourselves and, and more of others. Now let's look at this last section here. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this... I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. So this last, this last section seems to, to be from, from Nehemiah's personal diary of sorts, really in order to, to bring light to, to his own radical generosity toward his people who were, who were suffering. Beyond the repentance and retribution that, that he calls for, the, the need to be... Uh, um, there needs to be action in building one another up 
And, and we see how he does this. Right? He mentions having a food allowance that, that was appropriate for, for his job as governor in Jerusalem. And he lists these allowances along with his right to collect taxes, which is perfectly legal for, for a Persian governor. And so demanding these things would not have been unethical. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't insist on getting something just because he has the right to it. In fact, he, he relinquishes those rights in the interest of his brothers and sisters. This is the direct opposite of the selfishness that we talked about earlier. What Nehemiah did was an act of, of self-denial for the sake of others, for, for the sake of the kingdom of God. But as we know, Nehemiah himself wasn't ultimately enough. This was all in, in anticipation of, of another ruler who would demonstrate self-denial. Jesus, our Savior, who, who though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing. So we see Nehemiah engaging in, in a Christ-like strategy. He, he had certain rights and privileges, but, but he gave them up for the sake of his neighbor. And he, he even says that he had regular folk and, and officials and people from other nations around his table and provided for them at his own expense. A Christ-like strategy. Because Jesus humbled himself and gave up everything for the sake of humankind. And now we're invited to his table at his own expense. Nehemiah's own generosity was, was meant to be an example to his community. He, he wanted those who had fallen into the pattern of, of greed to, to cultivate a lifestyle of, of generosity and, and self-denial. Now, you might think that generosity is just kind of naturally human. It doesn't take Christianity to make it work. And that's partly true. Some of the most generous people are not Christians. Even those militantly opposed to Christianity are, are still helping the poor and the sick and the neglected. Christians aren't the only ones adopting children and, and helping people move and, and giving to charities. But Christians are called to be generous. We are called to be kind and thoughtful and show mercy and compassion toward others. We build up one another as we build the city of God. We heard in our, our readings this morning, uh, Paul in 1 Peter 3, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then he calls us to bless for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. But, but what's the motivation for all this? Why, why should we heed this call of, of radical generosity? Well, Nehemiah shares a twofold motivation in, in the back end of the chapter that I think we do well to, to see and act upon. Okay, his motivation to live generously is, is one, a, a fear of God. 
and two, a compassion for the suffering of his neighbor. In verse 15, Nehemiah says that he didn't take the allowances and lord it over the people like past governors had. Why? Because of the fear of God. See, Nehemiah feared God more than he feared man. He, he lived for God's glory first. The early Christians practiced generosity by sharing with one another as if they didn't own anything. And, and Acts 2 uh, tells us, this is fascinating, that, that the reason for this was that fear came upon every soul. God was more than, than a theological idea. God was everything to them. And they saw the need to live for God's glory by fighting for the unity of God's people. We should have this same fear. Too often, God is far from our thoughts, far from our hearts. And and if we're honest, myself included, we find more pleasure in sports or politics or our phones or whatever it is, than in living holy lives in, in true fellowship with God and one another. But when we fear God, we can effectively live to love God and love others. And then all those other things that we find pleasure in find their appropriate, appropriate place in our lives. The other motivation for Nehemiah was a compassion for the suffering of God's people, right? He showed a shepherd's heart. He was a, he was a great leader and he asked the people to work and work hard, but he also pastored and loved his people. He had compassion on them and his heart was moved by seeing them in distress. Chapter five begins with this, this great outcry that was heard by Nehemiah and he acted. It's the same word that's used in Exodus when the enslaved people cried out and God heard them and he acted in mercy. So if we follow Nehemiah's compassionate heart, we will imitate the heart of Jesus, the the greatest shepherd ruler whose heart aches at the sight of, of people's desperate need. So let me close with this exhortation. Through Christ and by his Holy Spirit, we have been given so much, everything. And as those who have received much, we have to be the first to give much away. Radical generosity should be the mark of those who have been reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks to this when writing to the Corinthians about issues of giving. He urges them that that their abundance should supply the need of others. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We must be generous in meeting the needs of others with a heart that's always conscious of receiving greater generosity from God himself.
If we do that, Satan's attempts to to break us down from, from without or within, they don't stand a chance. And we will be united. And we will be successful in building the city of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and all that we have to learn from, from the history of your people. One that, one that you're still writing today. And we praise you and thank you for your generosity in giving yourself through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Help us to realize the, the fullness of what we've been given and always be ready to live generously that we would rid ourselves of selfishness and sin and and are able to faithfully work rebuilding your church. Guard us against the devices of Satan who who would love nothing more than to tear us apart from the inside out. Guide us and keep us walking in the fear of the Lord. We pray all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.